2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And one day, every single person in this room will rise from the dead. Whoever you are, you will rise from the grave. And my very simple ambition today is simply to instill confidence in both of those resurrections in you. I want us to believe wholeheartedly that Jesus actually came out of the grave 2,000 years ago and walked again and appeared to his disciples. But actually, I want to focus today on instilling in us hope that we will all rise from the dead one day. In the flesh, that's actually impossible, right? So it's a simple ambition, but it's an impossible one because there's no amount of intellectual effort that you can go to to go, all right, I'm going to set a reminder in my phone to every day go, I'm going to be raised one day. Okay, that might be of help, but that's not resurrection hope. Resurrection hope is something that is birthed in you by God himself. So in the flesh, it's impossible, but I want to say all of us who know Christ have the spirit of God in us And the Spirit, Paul calls the Spirit in Ephesians 1, that same passage that, um, is it the same passage you were quoting from before? Um, He calls the Spirit the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the Spirit in us actually confirms to us that we will rise again to an, an inheritance. So in the Spirit, it's inevitable that we will have this resurrection hope. So let's hear God's word today and just trust that faith in these things comes Not from intellectual effort, but from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, and hearing by the Spirit of God in us. But I want to say outright, there are a couple of barriers to us really receiving what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If you'd turn there, actually, uh, if you've got your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going today. In case you didn't realize, I didn't make up all that stuff at the beginning as much as I wish I could. Um, There are two barriers to us actually embracing these things. The first is that down to, a, down to a man, woman, and child in here, we are by nature now-oriented people. We are, we are concerned with what is happening around us, with the tangible, with what I have to do tomorrow, with what's going on in my life, by nature. And so when it comes to matters of eternity, we can sort of say, well, look, it's all, it's a bit ambiguous. I guess I'll know when I get there. I know that if it's with God, it will be good. And I'm just going to focus on the here and now, and I'll find out when we, when we get there what actually happens. And as Christians, we can even do that, um, you know, sort of baptize that in saying, I want to be useful for the Lord right here and now. I don't want to just be sitting in a room pondering eternity. I want to be useful on the ground. If uh, that is sort of your sentiment at all today, I want to draw your attention to Paul's application right at the end of this passage, verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. The one application he gives is this. After laying out this whole detailed picture of the resurrection at the end of the age, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, for Paul, if you understand the resurrection correctly, it is very, very natural that you will actually be a bold, immovable Christian right here, right now, feverish in your work for Christ and fruitful, importantly, in your work for Christ. He says your labor won't be in vain. That's a theme that actually continues through this whole text. He says it over and over again. Your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile if you don't believe in the resurrection. And then right at the end, he says, if you do believe in it, your labor is never in vain. So all that to say, nothing could be more relevant to what you do tomorrow than what is written in this text. The second thing that sort of blocks us from seeing these things, though, is what I would say is decades of half-right teaching on eternity. 
and we even saw it in the kids' video before, I hate to say it, but, um, which is really this, this belief that the hope of Christians is simply that we go to heaven when we die, that that's our hope, that when we die, we get to go to be with God in heaven. Certainly there are texts that talk about the fact that we will be with God when we die, there's no doubt about that. That's not our hope, that's not called our hope in scripture. And in fact, you see in this text, which is about our ultimate hope, uh, there, is, there is nothing about going to heaven as some disembodied soul to be with God. Actually, this is a bodily resurrection here on earth. There's also nothing here about what happens when I die personally. This is a passage about what happens when death dies. Death is swallowed up in victory. The final picture of what uh, this world will look like and where we will be in Revelation 21 is this. Here we are on earth, a recreated earth, a new heavens, and actually the new Jerusalem, where does it come from? Out of heaven onto earth. And here we are living. It says God, the dwelling place of God is with his people. Not us with God, as that scripture said, as the uh, story said, we will go up to be with God. No, God will actually dwell with us here, a new heavens and a new earth. So the context here is actually that there were some Corinthians who denied that that resurrection would ever take place. They did not believe in the resurrection. And what I want to say to us here is that as believers, I imagine that there's no one here who would actually deny that we will be raised to life again. But if we affirm that doctrine without hoping in it, without staking anything on it, without letting it reorder our priorities, without tethering ourselves emotionally to it, it is the same as not believing in it. There are no kudos given in scripture ever for just intellectually believing something to be the case. And so if you don't actually hope in this resurrection, all that Paul says to the Corinthians who denied it is just as relevant to us here. So let's dive into the text. And we start firstly with Christ's resurrection before moving on to our resurrection. I think another thing we're potentially guilty of in the church is speaking more about the cross than the resurrection. Do you think that would be right, that we spend more time talking about cross than resurrection? Which is understandable because... The cross in the scriptures has a lot of symbolic power and through church history we've spoken a lot about it. It is a symbol of absolute victory for us as Christians. But we need to remember that it wasn't always that way. Uh, and in fact, goodness me, there were two quotes that I had uh, printed out that I did not stick to my notes. So let me see if I can remember. The N.T. Wright one is way too long. Basically what he says is that for the early Christians actually... Uh, crucifixion already had a symbolic meaning and it wasn't the meaning of victory and power it was the symbol that the Romans attached to it which was a symbol of Roman power a symbol that if you get in the Romans way they will destroy you in the most nasty way possible and in fact for those disciples on Easter Saturday that first day when Christ is in the grave they were not thinking cross is victory they were thinking the cross means we backed the wrong horse the cross means actually we're going to be lucky to escape with our lives here uh, the Calvin quote was, uh, he said, look, if you just consider the cross of Christ apart from the resurrection, all you have there is grounds for despair. Because the one who actually couldn't conquer death could not conquer death for us. If, without resurrection, the cross is actually a symbol of failure. But then the resurrection transforms the cross from failure to victory, doesn't it? You see, that's exactly the way Paul argues here. You know, it can almost sound like quotes like that are a little bit irreverent, but Paul himself says here, if Christ isn't raised, your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. The resurrection transforms the cross from failure to victory because what it tells us is that 
the sacrifice that Christ paid on that cross is both sufficient and successful. You see, we, we saw at the end there, uh, verse 56 and 57, that uh, a sin is called the sting of death. And that's uh, not to be thought of as like what you're left with, the feeling you're left with after someone slaps you, a sting on your face. Actually, that Greek word means the first thing you feel. It's the tip of the spear, literally. It's the thing that does the damage. So sin did the damage to us as a human race, and death followed sin. Death is not a natural thing that we experience. It's something that is the consequences for our sin. And so when Christ came, and he actually bore all of our sins, and bore the punishment for that, our sins, which was death, what happened was that that being uh, defeated, those sins being emptied, the sting gone now, Death no longer had any role to play. There was no punishment to exact anymore. Christ had already paid that price. And therefore, he rose again from the dead. Death literally couldn't hold him anymore because there was no sin that he was carrying. He died the death. Death no longer applies. And because then of the importance of the resurrection, Paul emphasizes it a lot in this text. Did you notice that? Verse 4, he says, firstly, this resurrection was actually, um, it was in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures predicted this. We don't have time to get into those scriptures today, but um, Psalm 16 would be a good one to look at, Isaiah 53 as well. In both of these, God actually predicted in advance that the Messiah would rise from the dead. So it was in accordance with the scriptures. But verse 5, he then goes on and starts listing off these eyewitnesses, doesn't he? He starts talking about uh, Cephas and the Twelve and the 500 brothers, and the implication is... You can actually ask any one of these people. They're all still alive. Ask me. Ask me. I saw the resurrected Christ, Paul says. You can knock on their door and ask them. And so we've got to ask, why did Christ appear to so many people? He didn't just stay briefly, did he? He stayed over a span, as Acts tell us, he stayed over a span of 40 days. Is that right? Hundreds of people that he appeared to. Why? I think the reason is this fact is way too important for us to simply believe one eyewitness account about. One guy in a dimly lit room said he saw Christ after he died. That is not sufficient evidence. But Christ actually, in his kindness to us, appeared to a lot of people, 500 at one time, to confirm that this is not wishful thinking, this is historical fact that we believe when we say Christ rose from the dead. It's also important to remember, um, uh, to know the reality of the resurrection, because it's not just Christ that was called to go to the cross, is it? But actually, we are, as his followers are called to go to the cross. In fact, it feels very fitting. Last year, I was preaching out of Mark on um, that passage where Jesus says, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me if you want to be my disciple. And we were talking then about the cross of Christ and the cross of the Christian. And now it's a nice bookend. We get to talk about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the Christian. And it's something we don't comment on probably enough, but... Christ's resurrection was something that steadied him in going to the cross. We see in Hebrews, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. In Isaiah 53, it says literally, out of the anguish of his soul, when he's dying on the cross, Jesus looks ahead to his offspring. He looks ahead to on the other side of that grave. And so in the same way, we will not be able to sustain our efforts as disciples in dying to ourselves daily, in sacrificial love, in pouring out ourselves, in persecution, if we don't set before our eyes the resurrection. 
And so that's where we turn next, our resurrection. Did you notice in this passage that Paul actually links the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection? Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He can argue seamlessly from one to another. If Christ is raised, we'll be raised. If Christ isn't raised, we won't be. If we are raised at the end, Christ was. If we're not, he, he wasn't. Why is that? Why can't we separate those two events? Well, the clue comes in verse 20 and 22. See if you can catch the repeated word here. Verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then verse 20. As in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. That word first fruits is what the link is. That's harvest language. In the Old Testament, before you harvested your field and brought in your crops for yourself, you would give an offering of first fruits to God, literally the first fruits. You'd collect them, take them to God, and you'd say, these are for you. Then you'd go harvest the rest. And Paul tells us that that is what's happening in Christ's resurrection. Now, this is, uh, this is powerful stuff, I think, in the way he, he argues this. That Christ's resurrection is actually properly of a piece with the final resurrection at the end of the age. That's where it belongs. And yet it happened in the middle of history. It was literally the first fruits of what would come. You see, people had been raised literally from the dead before Christ. And in fact, Christ even raised a couple of people. But he raised them back to the flesh that they were in before. And then they went and died again. Whereas Jesus was the first one to rise in glorified flesh and to never die again to live now eternally. In that way, that is what our resurrection will be at the end of the age. That is the first of the eschatological, the end times resurrection. And because of this connection, uh, there are stunning implications. I'll give you just three. The first is this. We have confidence in our resurrection. If Christ was raised from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead. Not only because God has proven his power to bring a lifeless corpse back, but also because God doesn't leave a job unfinished. There is a harvest to collect. He's only taken the first fruits. The harvest is still to come, and he will surely bring that in. That's us. Secondly, it inspires awe because it tells us that as Christ was raised from the dead, so also we will be raised. That is, the first fruits, they're not just the first bit of the harvest, but they're actually a representative sample. If the first fruits are bad, you know the harvest is going to be bad. If they're good, the harvest will be good. And so it is with Christ. We find out, and this is the clearest statement of it probably, but it's everywhere in the New Testament. Um, 1 John 3, 2 tells us, uh, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be we don't know yet, but we know that when we see him we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We see it in this text later on. Uh, We have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam. We will bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. Thirdly, it inspires worship. Because we recognize in this harvest language, this is all not about us as individuals so much as it is about our God. It's not just about our individual hope. Again, I get to go to heaven when I die. As much as we rejoice in that, we ought to. But it's not just about that. It's a cosmic hope in which our God will reign ultimately over a glorified new humanity 
in a glorious new creation. That is our hope. And we get to participate in that. So worship. And that's where we go next in this passage. Verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That's uh, our hope, ultimately. Let me paraphrase in case that got a little bit wordy for you. This is my best attempt. So Adam was the first head of humanity, wasn't he? And he had a very unique role in that whatever he did actually affected his offspring underneath him. So when he sinned, the scriptures say, we all sinned in him, and the wages of that sin was death. So death entered creation, and so we all die. That's why we die today, because Adam sinned. But then Christ came as a new head of humanity. He was only the second person and the last person to fulfill this role in which he would be uh, this unique person for whom everyone in his new humanity would benefit from what he does. And Christ came bearing our sins, dying our death, and then rising again. And in so doing, he actually blocked out for all who would believe in him and therefore form a part of his new humanity. He then blocked out, destroyed sin and death, and he confirmed for us our resurrection to come. Then this passage says that he ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns, and he rules subduing all of his enemies, putting them all under his feet. The last enemy, this, this passage seems to be suggesting, is something that Christ actually comes back for personally. He comes back for death personally. So that's the one he defeats at the end. And he returns, and the way he destroys death is by calling the names of every human being who has ever lived. Just as he called Lazarus, come out, so also he will call Jeff, come out, Vicky, come out, you know, Rob, come out, and everyone who doesn't know him as well, come out of your graves. And there will be a resurrection, the scriptures say, of the just and the unjust, the unjust to everlasting punishment. But for those who are, again, part of this new humanity, who don't look anymore to Adam as their head, from which sin and death comes, but look now to Christ as their head, where life and resurrection comes from, those ones will go with him, uh, will rise with him, and live eternally. And then those last few verses there that get so wordy and complex, I think what he's trying to say here, and look, I'd be very interested in your insights on this afterwards, is that Christ having completed this redemption assignment, this is verse 27 to 28, having completed this, re this redemption assignment that he was sent for to redeem Adam's fallen race, once he's done all of that, every enemy is destroyed, every rival authority, every power, it's all gone, death is over, he then takes that kingdom and in love and in generosity, he gives that back to the Father. And he says, now that's yours. And what we end up with at the end is, is just what Adam lost, right? He walked with God directly in the cool of the day in that garden. And that's where we end up with in eternity, with God being everything to everyone, God being all in all. Now that is a vision of eternity 
that creates some very unusually focused and bold lives in the here and now. That's where Paul goes next in this passage. In verse 30 and 32, he's going to say it's that vision of eternity that causes him to put himself in danger every day. That's what causes him to endure persecution as he preaches the good news. That's what causes him to actually die to himself and his own desires. But on the contrary, if you don't set that vision of eternity before you, he actually says you're likely to start living for yourself. You see that in verse, uh, where are we? Verse 32, the end there. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Actually, if you don't set that vision of resurrection life before you, what you're likely to do is cling on to your life now and ensure that you don't face any persecution now. And that makes sense for those, literally, you know, our world is one in which resurrection belief is largely absent, right? Most people believe we, we literally are extinguished at the point of death. And it makes sense if you believe that, honestly, to live for yourself. It really does. You've got one life, squeeze all the juice out of it you can, and then go into the grave. But nothing could make less sense than for a Christian who believes in the resurrection to live like that. Here I've got all eternity to live, but I've got to squeeze the juice out of this life and actually jeopardize my eternity in the process. And so to those, Paul says, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up from your drunken stupor. I toyed with whether to get anyone to raise their hands here, but I don't know if it would be wise for legal reasons. But I don't know if anyone's fallen asleep at the wheel before in the car. Um, it is amazing. <laughs> I'm getting a couple of halfies. Um, it is amazing how easy it is not only to fall asleep when you're driving 80 k's an hour, but even to start having dreams. I once uh, dropped Jazz off my wife um, after a wedding. We weren't living, uh, we weren't married at that time. And so I dropped her off at her house and I was driving back along Sandy Bay Road late at night. And I made several key mistakes, right? I, firstly, I put the warm air on, cranked that up a little bit. This is nice. Put a bit of um, soft indie folk music on. That was pleasant. A bit of acoustic guitar in the background. And then, you're not going to believe this. But I actually, I actually grabbed the old lever and put the seat back a little bit. And I was just sort of cruising. And I, it took me 30 seconds and I was asleep. And I even dreamt. Um, and then as I was dreaming, I was awakened by a bang on the curb. I crossed over into oncoming traffic, bang on the curb, heading toward the Derwent. Woke up, brought the car back on the road, and, uh, and thanked God. Um, but you see, Paul is saying, actually, we can do the exact same thing with life. Every day we're in a car hurtling towards eternity. Today we are much closer to eternity than we were yesterday. And we're getting there rapidly. And yet it's amazing, as important as that is, we can be so lulled to sleep by the scenery around us, by the soft music on. You know, all these things are actually good gifts that we have that can be used in great ways, but a bit of Netflix here, a bit of Facebook there, a, bit, a few hobbies over here, you know, some alcohol there, some good times over here. And before you know it, you're actually dreaming your way into eternity. You're actually dreaming your way into that moment where you hit the curb and Christ calls your name. Paul says, you've got to wake up. You've got to wake up. What you've got to do is actually roll down the window, don't you? And I've learned this. This is what I do now. Roll down the window. It's so unpleasant and the cold air comes streaming in. You crank the music up. And it's uncomfortable, but it gets you where you want to go. 
and it gets you driving straight. And so it is with resurrection hope. When we set these truths before us, it's cold air to us. It's uncomfortable, but we live like we should live and we get where we want to get to. So part of what it means to set resurrection hope before us, I want to put to us, is to not allow that hope to be vague in our minds. A vague hope doesn't stimulate action. If we just go, I'll be with God at some point, that's not going to stimulate action right now. What we want is a specific hope, as specific as we can get, and we do get specifics here. Paul gives us two analogies of the resurrection. The first is sleep in this passage. This is a favorite euphemism for death in the New Testament. Uh, We don't die as Christians. None of us die. Christ has defeated death. No one dies. We fall asleep and then we wake up. And that kind of terminology you can see is actually pregnant with resurrection theology. Because if I tell you that a week and a half ago, Jean Campbell fell asleep, you instantly know, well, one day she'll wake up again. She'll wake up and I'll wake up and we'll be there together. And that's exactly what Paul intended with that word and Jesus before him. In fact, the early Christians were so bought into this phrase, I don't know if you know this, but they started calling their graveyards koimaterion, which uh, was the Greek word for a dormitory, for a a resting house. And they would say, here are all of our sleeping bodies, and they'll wake up again at one point and check out. That's where we get our word cemetery from. It's a koimaterion, it's a sleeping place, it's a dormitory. The... the, um, Analogy of sleep here really stresses the continuity of our life now with resurrection life. I go to sleep as Jordan at night, and I wake up as Jordan in the morning, unless something is horribly wrong, right? We all do that, and that's what it's like in the resurrection. It is that seamless. You fall asleep, you wake up. But then there's another analogy, and that is of seed sown, verse 36. Paul says, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, And what you sow, verse 37, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. That's actually radical discontinuity between this life and that life. I don't hold up the seed of an apple and say, behold an apple. And so also, we shouldn't look at ourselves now and say, this is all I will ever be. It's not. This is actually not the life we were created for. We were created to be whatever we will be, an apple, a pear, a tree, in the new creation. Just as different as a seed is to a plant, so also is this life to the resurrection. You see, this is just kernel life, seed life. If you look at your body and you say to yourself, there are some things that really don't work as well as I would like them to work. There are some pains that I have. There are some difficulties that I have in this body. I don't have as many talents as I would like to have, skills I would like to have. We need to remember this is not who we are actually ultimately created to be. As meaningful as this life is, as purposeful as it is, as wonderful as it is, it is just a bare kernel of what will be. And that hope is all the more acute when a person actually dies. Jazz, my wife, works in aged care. And she was just saying just the other day, because she she watched and, and cared for Jean Campbell as she was dying, She said, what's so off-putting about that is that in the last few weeks, the person doesn't even really resemble what they were like before. They they stop eating, they sleep all the time, they start really wasting away, and they're so weak and fragile at the end. That's exactly what Paul's getting at, isn't it? When he makes these remarkable statements, these remarkable contrasts, verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, 
What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, fragile, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It can be hard to believe that if you've seen someone dying or if you just experience um, a real breaking down of your own body. It can be hard to believe that. But Paul tells us we actually have an example of that every day when we look around. You see a seed go into the ground, it dies. It's tiny, it's nothing, and it comes out. A great tree, a great plant. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now I want to say just briefly, don't be misled by that language of natural body and spiritual body. It's easy to think of that as, well, we we are now physical and uh, tangible, but then we'll just be disembodied spirits. Actually, literally the Greek words are soulish body, for natural body, and spiritish body, for spiritual body. It's not about the substance it's made of, it's about what animates it. And you see there that he goes on, he talks about Adam, uh, verse 45, the first Adam was a living being or a living soul. He was made from the dust and he had a soul breathed into him. He says, but the last man was a life-giving spirit. And so it is in the resurrection of the dead. We have borne this image of Adam, dust with a soul breathed in. We will bear the image of the resurrected Christ, which is the fabric of heaven with the spirit of God breathed in. But it says that this change is coming for all of us. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's something to take to the bank. Whether you are a Christian of strong faith or weak faith, whether you are someone who dies before Christ returns or you're fortunate to live to see that, whether you have a thriving ministry for Christ or a fairly ordinary life that not many comment upon, whether you live a hundred amazing years on this earth, so full, or 30 pretty miserable ones, whether your body is healthy or riddled with pain, whether you're married or single, whether you're buried or cremated, says we won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. Every single one of us will be wonderfully created. And on that day, we will be more fully ourselves than we ever were. More fully ourselves than we ever were, but all of us will bear that glorious image of Christ. So, what do we do with this resurrection hope now? Well, I want to say two things. Number one, base your joy on it. That's not where Paul goes here, but he goes there elsewhere. So I'll steal from Romans chapter 12, where Paul says that we ought to rejoice in this hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. By nature, we tether our joy to our past accomplishments or lack thereof, or to our present conditions, whether good or bad. And we kind of ride that roller coaster depending on what we're remembering and what we're feeling right now. But the gospel calls us actually to tether our joy to future hope. That is something that is certain. That is something that is fixed, that never wavers. And if we do that, the promise is that we are patient in tribulation now. I want to encourage you to use this. When you go through times of tribulation, and this verse will often come to my mind, and you go, man, this is a big problem, this is insurmountable, I'm just feeling all this stuff, and then you just get it in perspective and say, hold on, I've got a glorious resurrection hope. I can actually be patient in this tribulation now. In fact, this light and momentary affliction, Paul tells us elsewhere, is working for us an immeasurable weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's the same with your identity, you know, that we can base our identity on the past. I've always done this, so I'm that kind of person. I've never been good at this, so I'm, I'm not that kind of person. 
or to our present, but again, our identity is to be based on what God will make us. Paul says that we are to actually um, consider the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We're actually to consider our life above, consider what we will be with him, and then let that inform who we are now, who God is making us. And lastly, what we need to do with this is focus our lives and our work in Christ around it. So again, back to that final application, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, this is not just a truth to comfort yourself when your body is giving out or when there is tragedy in your family or in your life. It's actually a hope to set before you every day to motivate and stimulate you in your work for Christ. We get a lot of comments, a lot of questions, probably the most questions we get in the teaching team, in the surveys that we put out, is how do I stand firm in a world that is moving away from Christ? How do I stand up when the culture is going sideways? And the first answer is not to understand the culture better. It's not to get better arguments. Paul says the first thing is get your hope right. And if you get your hope right, he says, you will be steadfast and immovable. It doesn't matter what the culture does around you. And when we set this before us daily, this resurrection hope, we will rid ourselves of those distractions that lull us to sleep. And we will recognize, actually, I can risk something today for Christ because my future is that secure. I can suffer for Christ today because glory awaits me. I can be generous to people today and actually not hang on to the things that I hold dear because actually there's an abundance, there's a great inheritance coming. I can give my time to people today because my eternity stretches on forever. I can serve even when I'm unthanked, persistently serve people because Jesus says whatever you're not thanked for here, you will be uh, rewarded for by God at the resurrection of the just. I can be a fool for Christ here knowing that uh, the honour of God will be upon me for the rest of my life. I can actually lose my life now knowing I will find it there. And as I do that again, I have this promise. Whatever I do in Christ will be fruitful because I have the spirit of resurrection in me already. And everything I do will matter in eternity. Jesus says even a cup of cold water given to a needy saint now is not without effect and not without reward in the age to come. So let us, brothers and sisters, set resurrection hope before us. May God set it alight in our hearts and may we live those unusual lives and those fruitful lives for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just acknowledge again, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have heard your word, Lord, and we trust the promise now that faith in these things will come to life. I pray, Lord, that down to every single one of us, man, woman, child in this room, our hope would be so firmly tethered to this resurrection, Lord, that we would not count our lives dear here, but we would actually willingly surrender it, put them in danger, whatever we need to do for the cause of Christ, knowing, Lord, that we have an eternal weight of glory coming to us. Lord, in small things as well, I just want to pray, Lord, in marriages, in family, in friendships, in feelings of being unthanked, unappreciated, any of this stuff, Lord, I pray that instead we would just say, we are actually working for something far bigger than this. We would be able to hope in that resurrection and the reward that is coming, that we'd be able to see the smile on your face, the well done, good and faithful servant, and be able to endure now what we need to endure with joy. Lord, we thank you that Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. We give you praise, God, 
that we know not all the specifics, but you will raise these bodies to glorious life in the future, Lord. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name, who gives us the victory. Amen.